We've been doing uh, Easter here for 10 years. We've been a worshiping community for about 10 years, and this is the first time a um, worship leader has ever used Yankee Stadium and a charge full with the charge of the soul. So, Jessica, you are my favorite worship leader. <laughs> Don't tell the other worship leaders. Yankees, owners of the longest winning streak in baseball, by the way. And this also reminds me that my first Easter message I ever gave, which was 18 years ago, involved a dream I had about baseball and an actual baseball signed by the 1976 Yankees World Series team. I will tell you that story again sometime when those of you who have been around for a while have forgotten hearing it the first time. <laughs> so the other thing I do want to say that uh, um, I... Sorry, I praised you. I'm going to critique you a little bit here. We would never name any being in our household Sheldon Belden. <laughs> and by the way, please make that joke at the 11 as well. So you set me up for this again. Um, Sheldon was named Sheldon when we got Sheldon, and we decided he has a name already. We're going to keep that. And besides, it's a very modern household we have. So Sheldon decided to take Teresa's name. So he is technically Sheldon Nazario. Okay. All that being out of the way, let's get to this year's Easter. I want to take you on a little architectural digest tour, some beautiful rooms. Doesn't that look lovely? Bedroom, gorgeous bedroom, gorgeous view. Wouldn't that look like a place you could just, even if you had trouble sleeping, you would still be comfortable there. Next slide. Ooh, look at that pool. Look at that view. Next one. Hold on for a second before we go to the next one after this. What's that oak? I don't know what it is. It's beautiful. Nice game room. Nice living room. Any idea where this is? Any idea at all? Where these rooms are located? Yes. These are in doomsday bunkers. For the super, super elite rich planning for the end of the world as we know it. Let me tell you a little bit more. This is where they're located. They are located... As developer Larry Hall transformed this abandoned Atlas missile silo into luxury condos. Each residence is equipped with stainless steel appliances, should you want to invest. LED lighting, washers and dryers, and a home automation system. Owners also have access to a pool, rock climbing wall, movie theater, dog park, and arcade. So, by the way, those pictures you're seeing in there are not actually of the outside. Those are to remind you that there once was an outside. In a world of high stress and high anxiety, yes, Bunkers for Billionaires is now a thing. And it's not just I heard one story about this. I have actually seen three stories about Bunkers for Billionaires in the last month. There was an interview, I think, on, uh, on Fresh Air with uh, one of these kind of Silicon Valley tech titans. And... The guy they were interviewing was actually quite critical of this Bunkers for Billionaires. And he said whenever he runs into one of his fellow tech titans who's planning for the end of the world as we know it and seeking to make themselves safe, he asks this question. Basically comes down to this, my paraphrase. What would it look like not to plan for the end of the world, but to invest our enormous resources in saving it? <laughs> 
This is an Easter question. Even, and you might surprise me if you tell me yes to this, even if none of us have bunker billionaire money. This is an Easter question. Not fleeing from the world, not seeking to escape it, not having a spirituality of up, 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 and far away, far away, far away, but here and now. So Easter, as Jessica beautifully alluded to, Easter in this tradition is not taken literally. There is no one single Orthodox teaching that is told, this is the meaning of Easter for you. We don't take Easter literally. But I hope that because we're here today, we can all take Easter seriously and find meaning in this holiday, find meaning in this holy day that is truly in the greatest sense of those friends of mine who take the the Bible so seriously and to heart, they call it a living word. So that's my intention today is to help make this Easter holiday a living word for all of us so we can draw meaning from it. And one of the first things I do when I pay attention to the scripture and want to live inside of the Easter story, I pay attention to the fact that, yes, Jesus is crucified and he dies and, yes, he rises. He comes back, sees his friends, sees the people who he loved the most, has a little fish, a little nosh like a good Jewish boy would. And he tells them he loves them, and then he leaves. So I'm going to be with you, because I love you, to the end of time, but then I'm gone. And the story, if you know it, does not follow Jesus up to heaven. (laughs) The story stays right here. And stays with those people who loved Jesus most. The people who were bereft when he died... The people who scattered, they were so afraid, and yet shows that somehow they found a way to the other side, that they experienced in all the ways we can all experience this, a love that is stronger than death, and they bounced back, and they persevered. See, Jesus' time was not all that different from our time. People also thought back then the world was coming to an end. People also, although the digs were a little less wanky than what we saw today, decamped to caves by the Dead Sea to wait out the end of the world and perhaps to think they could keep themselves safe. A bit more rustic again, but it's the same instinct. And the challenge then is the challenge now, which is the fear that our lives are unsustainable. And the truth is, when we scratch the surface of a lot of our lives and a lot of this culture, it feels very unsustainable. The problem is, however, when we give into that fear of unsustainability, you know what that creates the conditions of? More unsustainability. And we have stories of billionaires building bunkers, seeking to save just themselves, rather than asking the hopeful question, how can they, and it's extended to all of us as well, to use our resources, I'm not talking just financial right now, to be involved in the saving and the healing of this world. Not seeking escape or denial, because ultimately what that means is we really do believe the worst things about our lives. That death and suffering and sorrow and despair are the most central things to life. And that's not, obviously, a hopeful frame of reference. And that is not what this tradition, our tradition, tells us. So every year as I'm preparing for 
Easter, it seems I find one particular story that brings the meaning of this holy day home to me. Could be large scale, could be small scale. Reverend Lee, a couple days ago when I was saying, I have this hole in my message, and here's what I want to go there. And we talked about it. And she said, would this work? And after I texted her back and said, you know, after I'm done now crying, I'm going to write this up and put this in my message. This is a small scale story of Easter. But it contains within it the seed of what this holiday can be about for all of us. Some of you know this. Actually, I think I first saw it in some of your Facebook feeds. It's a New York Times story called The Accident No One Talked About by Jessica Ciencen Enriquez. It is about a time in her life, 15, 16 years ago, when she and her slightly older brother, a year and a couple months, her older brother Alex, were living together in Florida. And she was seeing her brother Alex and a friend of his, Jonathan, come back from the beach where they were living in Florida with pails of fish. And all of a sudden, a car swerved around the corner, did not see Alex and Jonathan crossing the street, and plowed into Jonathan, dragging him, as the police report says, 19 yards, and killing him. Now, Jessica's family, the response to this was to feel overwhelmed. Who wouldn't feel overwhelmed? And so what Jessica remembers is on the drive to Jonathan's funeral, one of Alex's best friends, that with no explanation other than it's all God's will, was all they said. And then on the drive back from the funeral, when Alex, feeling bereft and exhausted, was sleeping, Jessica's parents said to her, we should never talk about this again. And so Jessica remembers her brother, who she was very close to, so close to. They were just a year and a little bit apart from age. And when they were younger, they slept in the same bedroom and they would keep each other up all night talking and yammering to each other. And even after they grew up and became younger teens and they went to separate bedrooms, Alex would come back into her bedroom at night and lay on the ground next to her bed and tell her ghost stories until... She was so afraid that she would just instinctually reach out for his hand and he would hold it. So the last thing Jessica remembers before she fell asleep was her hand being held by her beloved brother. But her parents told her not to talk about it. And so after the accident, she would hear Alex crying in his bedroom. And against all her instincts, she did not go to him. And she never asked. And so the years unfold and Alex, who had always been the stellar student. I mean, this is Jessica Enriquez who's writing for the New York Times. This is a smart person. (laughs) This is a person of fantastic intellect. And she calls her brother the smart one. Alex, who had always been the straight-A student, failed out of college in his first year, began to drink and drug and get arrested for DUI, and Jessica would go bail him out and encourage him and try to get him somehow to get better. But remember, this is the accident that no one talked about. 
And so nothing worked. And then, like a lot of us who have had to deal with people we love who are causing great harm and great damage to themselves, she would yell, she would plead, she would complain, she would seek all the leverage she could, she would bribe, she would say, I know you're interested in restaurants, I know you want to become a chef, I will pay for you to go to culinary school. When you and your girlfriend come to New York City, you can sleep on the couch of my tiny little New York City apartment if you want to get a start in the restaurant industry. Nothing worked. When they were 30 and 31, Jessica said one night out of the blue, feeling nothing else had worked. You want to talk about it? The accident? And he said dismissively, not even looking at her, now you want to talk about it. And she could feel his fury over the silence, the imposed silence upon his broken heart. And he dismissed her saying, you don't need to worry about it. And his life continued on in this downward spiral. Something moved Jessica to go back to Florida and look up the accident report that had killed Alex's friend Jonathan. It was public record. She saw the name of the man He wasn't drunk. He wasn't doing anything wrong. It was an accident. She found his name. And she called him. And she said, please don't hang up. I am the sister of the boy who lived. And she said, I know it was a long time ago, and he shot back immediately. Not for me, it wasn't. He said, I came around that corner and I saw them and I knew I had the most difficult choice to make in my entire life. To the right, one boy, to the left, another. And I knew I couldn't avoid hitting one of them. How do you live with a choice like that? They talked for three hours that night, going through all the details of the accident. And she said, I'd like to take away my brother's pain. He said, you can't. But you can ask, and you can listen, and you can lessen his pain. And so Jessica went on a one-year quest, contacting everyone who was listed in the accident report. The EMTs, the paramedics, the staff at the hospital, Until a year later, she was sitting with her brother at dinner again. And she began talking about everything she had learned in the last year. And something amazing happened, which is that her brother, who had never talked about this, not in depth, began to correct the details that she had gotten wrong. And she asked, would you like to talk about this? And he said, yes. And it all came forth. And a couple years later, Alex is 33. She is 32. And she writes, Alex is no longer stuck in one memory. Now he is a parent to two little boys and will soon be married 
to their mother, and he works harder than anyone I know at the restaurant where he is. Opening up, closing down, showing up on holidays, and he doesn't need any more all that kind of help which really didn't help all those years ago of the rescue and the bailing out. All the help that was offered before Jessica learned that asking and listening are the most valuable help of all. Turning to face our broken parts. Turning to face and not to flee and not to fear the things that have us ensnared. This is why the Easter story, I believe, does not follow Jesus up to heaven. That would be wonderful metaphysically, right? But the story stays right here. With the community that did not know how they would get to the other side and yet did somehow. I don't think any of us really get to the place where we get rid of our wounds and our fears. This is why when I do funerals and memorial services, I will say something very explicitly. And I'll clear this with the family beforehand, but I want them to know who they're working with. I will say we are not here today for closure. Nothing meaningful ever closes. Rather, we are here to open. Open to whatever we feel. Heard an interview some years ago with a woman who wrote a really beautiful, non-moralistic, non-judgmental, but fervent and passionate argument against suicide that she simply titled, Stay. And she says she speaks to those people who have found their way to the other side of their wounds by always saying, thank you for staying. This is what happens when we don't seek a spirituality of escape, when we seek a spirituality of deeper in. And for some of us that happens by being listened to or by speaking the truth as we know it, For some of us, that happens on our yoga mats. For some of us, it happens in the deep silence of meditation. For some of us, it happens when we take our own pain and we turn outward to the pain of the world and we don't seek escape from it. We look for the ways of healing and helping, like the old Mr. Rogers quote that we all love to post on Facebook after a great tragedy happens. But the thing is, that's true every single day. We don't have to look for the helpers because we can become the helpers. And yes, when we really engage our own pain or someone else's, it feels if not literally, inwardly, it can feel like a crucifixion. It can feel like a death throw. Death throws, you know, that sense of the shaking. We talk about something being in death throws. This is where I came at with the message for today. And what I really wanted to call it was a throw up. But (laughs) that wasn't going to (laughs) work. So rather throw down, (laughs) engage in our struggles, engage in the way that finds us toward Easter. In fact, we throw down so that we can grow up. So we don't have to be stuck in the one memory. So that we can learn to lean in, in yes, appropriate and boundaried ways, but lean in nonetheless to our own pain inner and to the pain around us outer. Lean in to what causes pain. Lean into what helps. Lean into what does not cause harm. And participate. This is the invitation of Easter.
participate in the healing of our world. Small ways, maybe, but to participate nonetheless. When I reflect on the last six months here at Wellsprings, it's been about six months or so since the election, I can tell you I have never had a more interesting time in my ministry. (laughs) It is a fascinating time to be a spiritual community. When I look back on the three moments, three single moments that people reflect back to me most regularly and that stick with me most powerfully, it's our Day of the Dead service in late October. It's the night, not the Sunday, but the night after the election when we gathered here to speak of fears and hopes and to join together in community. And also last week when I talked about listening all the way to the end. All the way to the end of our lives and the end of other people's lives. This is what stays with me most powerfully and this is what I continue to hear from many of you. And this has absolutely nothing to do with being fixated on death or fixated on what hurts. It's that something magical happens. Some amazing alchemy when we learn not to turn away from the pain, but to love even our struggles, our hurts, our grief. We allow something new to be born. We can recognize the wisdom of what the great poet Adrian Rich wrote. That she cast her lot with those people who year after year, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. This is, I think, the Easter invitation, especially for this year. How might all of us participate in the reconstituting of our world? Facing our pain, our dis-ease, the tough stuff. And also finding in those acts of individual and collective facing greater strength, greater resilience, that we can all bear within us the capacity for life-giving and love-creating beyond even our most wild imaginations. Happy Easter, my friends. Amen. May you live in blessing. Pray with me. God, beyond any creed, beyond any word, beyond any tradition, ours or any, we recognize that baked into this holy day is this invitation, is this template of healing, is this path and pattern and practice more than anything else. To recognize, as another great teacher said, there is the wisdom of no escape. There is the wisdom instead of facing. There is the wisdom of turning towards our own pain, our own broken hearts, and turning towards others as well, recognizing that in those places there is magic, the deepest, truest magic that there is. May we listen, and in the listening, may we learn not just facts, but something beyond facts, the truth of our belonging, and so in our listening and our learning, may we turn once again to know what it is to love. Amen.